We're looking at Jonah 4 this morning. It's our last week in just a four-week series on Jonah. Uh, The text is printed in the bulletin, and there are also some Bibles available on the back table if you need one, and children's Bibles that uh, have the story in it. Um, We've spent a few weeks, just just a few short weeks, uh, looking at the book of Jonah. It's a pretty unique book among the prophetic writings uh, there at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, and it's, it's unique because we expect, uh, for, it's unique for a lot of reasons, but uh, largely because we expect the prophet to be a hero. And, um, and we can really identify with him, but he's the bad guy, right? He's, he's not the hero, he's the bad guy. All of our expectations are overturned in this book. The good religious man turns out to be just the angry, petty bad guy. Um, and the immoral pagans... You know, they, they repent, and they're mercifully spared God's wrath. But one of the most amazing things about the Bible, I think, uh, is that it's full of surprises like this. If you take the time to understand it, uh, it overturns our expectations. And the most surprising thing uh, of all, I think, is that Jonah probably actually learned his lesson. He learned the lesson of grace that God was teaching him. Um, otherwise, how do we get the story, right? Um, he, he must have, uh, if he didn't write the book of Jonah himself, he told the story to the people who wrote the book of Jonah. So uh, this story is a call to confession of sin and a call to repentance. And Jonah apparently responds to some degree uh, to the call by confessing and repenting and passing along this story for future generations. He, um, you know, he has to some degree come to grips with God's mercy and it's overwhelmed him enough that he loves to proclaim it. He loves to proclaim God's mercy, and he does so by throwing himself under the bus, right? Uh, By telling everybody uh, what a total jerk he had been and how amazing God's grace is, really is, even for someone like him. I've said it before during this series, but I I think that this is, uh, in a sense, a manual for evangelism. We need to come to a true, uh, meaningful, deep experience of God's grace, and when we do, we will testify to his grace, And what does that mean? Our testimony can never be, uh, look at how awesome I am, don't you want to be a Christian like me, right? Our testimony, if it's a testimony to God's grace, can only be, look how messed up I am, and God loves me anyway. Um, God's been gracious and merciful to me even though I don't deserve it. Let me tell you about that. Um, And that's what we need to be saying to each other. We actually need to say this to each other. And, uh, and also to the non-Christians in our lives. This is a religion of grace because God is a God of grace and mercy. And if people are going to know him as he truly is, as he's revealed himself, uh, then they need to see his grace. And how better to highlight God's grace than to contrast him with ourselves? How better to highlight God's grace than to contrast Him with ourselves? And that's what this whole story of Jonah is about. It's highlighting, it's defining the grace of God by contrast with Jonah in particular, but with our wretchedness, as we can relate. <clears throat> At the end of the day, His grace and His mercy is actually beyond our understanding. It actually doesn't make sense. Uh, even if we experience it for ourselves, even if we know it for ourselves, it still is beyond us, Right? And what good news is that, that his compassion is so great that it's beyond our comprehension? Um, And that's, I think, what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning as we read the last chapter in Jonah's prophecy. So 
Let's pray and ask for God's help, and then uh, we'll read. Father, as we consider your word, uh, as we pray each week at this time, and hopefully as each of us prays in our um, daily time spent in your word, whenever that may be, uh, we need your help. Because here are these words written on a page that uh, we might be able to understand to some degree, but it, it won't strike home into our hearts unless you help us, unless you melt our hearts by your grace, by the work of your Holy Spirit. And we're thankful that your Spirit came into the world to do even that, and uh, that is his joy, to renew our hearts and to transform our minds as we encounter your word. So we pray for that work right now. We pr pray that it would be a great work. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me actually back up and read just the last uh, bit of chapter 3. When God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so uh, we finally reached the point in the story here at the end that uh, sheds light on everything that's been going on so far, and we've already looked at some of this. Uh, it turns out that Jonah's original disobedience, his original running from God, God told him, go to the Ninevites, preach. He turned and ran the other way, turned and ran, ran from God. That, that original disobedience and running from God in chapter 1 was motivated by a resentment of God's grace. It was, it was a resentment of his being a gracious God and merciful. Um, he resented God's grace to his enemies, these really evil pagans. Somehow he suspected that even though he was being sent to Nineveh with a message of condemnation, um, that God, being the sort of God he is, would probably have pity on those Ninevites 
And, um, and when you're building your identity on your own righteousness, thinking that you're in good standing with God, that you deserve better than others in their standing with God because of who you are, uh, at least when it comes to comparing yourself with others, then seeing this kind of sweeping, compassionate grace, it drives you absolutely crazy. And um, it undermines the core of what you believe makes you somebody, this grace. And there are so many people recorded in the Bible as hating God's grace. So many people. Um, we'd expect there to be a lot of people hating God's righteousness, hating God's judgment, hating God's omniscience or omnipresence or something, but not hating His mercy, not hating His compassion. Um, but when you know what God's mercy really means, that He makes no distinction between you and the worst people imaginable, that the only way anyone can approach Him for relationship is through His pity, through His forgiveness, then that'll start to really get on your nerves. The more so, uh, the more that you rely on your own goodness, the more that you've deceived yourself into thinking that you're better than a lot of other people, right? Uh, it'll really start to bug you. It's especially in comparison with others that really flushes out this self-righteousness. It really flushes out the resentment of God's grace. Uh, so maybe you've been a Christian for a few decades, and then when you're around uh, new believers uh, who came out of a pretty bad lifestyle or um, people with bad theology, maybe you're around people in the church, they've been in church for a long time, but they haven't really cared much to develop their theology to something like, more like what we have around here, you know? Uh, <clears throat> or people who only go to church for the social aspect of it, or people who go to church largely for the music, you know? Um, you start to feel superior to them. Right? I, you know, I'm not trying to brag, but I'm probably better than most Christians because I really understand the doctrines of God's grace. Right? How ironic is that? Or at least... Um, you know, you're wiser and more moral than your pagan neighbors, right? The people next door who don't go to church. Um, at least you're better parents than them, right? Um, or maybe you just cannot believe the things people do, the things that you see reported on the nightly news when you watch it. Oh, I can't believe. How could someone kill all their little babies and hide them in a basement? How could someone sentence a person to death for marrying a Christian? What kind of a human being would kidnap little children for the sex trade? What kind of person, who could walk into a school and just start shooting people? Who could do that? I can't believe that. There can be a real sense of moral indignation there. That might be right. You know, it's really bad when those things happen. But the minute that you distance yourself from them as if you could never really relate to that, uh, as if you didn't have the potential for that, as if they were beyond hope of mercy, the mercy that you've found, they're, they're beyond that, you know, <clears throat> then you've made something about yourself to be the merit badge, right? The merit badge that you feel, of course, God is paying attention to when he's handing out his grace and his favor. Oh, you've got that merit badge. Here's some more for you, right? Um, and when you're confronted with the reality of those terrible, terrible things that people do, those other people, those murderers, those kidnappers, 
confronted with the, the reality of them finding the same mercy, the very same mercy that you found, um, that gets offensive, right? <clears throat> I don't know if uh, you've read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Um, I, I've discovered recently that it is actually one of my favorite books that I need to come back to uh, over and over again. And it's the story, it's kind of like he's writing down a dream that he had, you know, it's a fiction, a fictional account of a, a field trip, if you will, of some souls that go from hell to the outskirts of heaven, where they're basically invited, uh, you know, it's a dream, he knows it's not supposed to be like perfect theology or whatever, they're basically invited to stay. They're, they're invited to come into heaven and be, be part of this, you know, give up hell and come and join us. But these, these souls that come from hell, they're very ghostly, they're very uh, vaporous. Uh, they can't stand being there in, in this world. And the people, the people that are in heaven are these solid, bright, glorious people. And it, uh, it's, it's fun because he talks about some of the uh, encounters that people have with one another. This ghost will have an encounter with this solid spirit that they knew on earth, Right? And, uh, and there are these interactions and, and a lot of times these conflicts. But there's this one encounter that uh, I think applies to our text this morning, and I've probably quoted it before, but <clears throat> there's a ghost who um, runs into somebody that he knew on earth that was a murderer. And this person's now in heaven, along with the person that he had murdered. <laughs> but uh, the murderer is in heaven, and this guy who thinks he's a really good guy He's not. He's, he's from hell, right? He's a ghost. And he says, what I'd like to understand is what you're here for, as pleased as punch, you, a bloody murderer, while I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I'd done my best all my life. See, I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? That's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. And the solid spirit says, it would be much better not to go on about that now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you what sort of chap I was, see? I'm asking for nothing but my rights. I got to have my rights, same as you, see? He says, oh no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I shouldn't be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best, and I never done anything wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. Then do. At once, ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. Sorry, this is a little bit extended. <clears throat> and the ghost goes on. That may be very well for you, I dare say, if they choose to let in a bloody murderer, all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment. That's their lookout. But I don't see myself going in the same boat with you, see? Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago, and you can tell him I said so. And the other shook his head. You can never do it like that. And it, it isn't exactly true, you know. Mirth danced in his eyes as he said it. What isn't true, said the ghost. You weren't a decent man. 
and you didn't do your best. We none of us were, and we none of us did. And the ghost says, you, you have the face to tell me I wasn't a decent chap. Um, <clears throat> that's what's being exposed here in Jonah. He's being told he's not a decent chap, right? And he's being confronted with that in light of the mercy that the Ninevites have received, and it displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. It says literally uh, in the Hebrew, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and he burned. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So he's got a serious anger problem. Um, He's angry at God. That's pretty clear. When you know God and when you know his mercy and when it also tears you up to think about his mercy going to other people, then you've got a conundrum and you can't live with yourself. I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our sermon discussion. <clears throat> uh, my wife and I, sometime in the last few months, as six months ago, we're having a really heated argument. It's one of those really interesting ones that you can't remember what you were talking about because that doesn't really matter, right? <clears throat> uh, really, really big argument. The substance isn't what matters, it's the attitude. I was angry, right? I was angry. I was yelling about something because I thought I was smarter or better or more worthy, and I had to defend that position, but the usual proofs had failed, Um, and uh, so I just had to shout. That was my last recourse. I was so angry. Just got to shout. And uh, actually, my last recourse was to walk away when when the shouting didn't work. Um, Walk away, get out of this situation where I'm becoming a walking contradiction, right? someone who is willing to kill, basically, to demonstrate how good I am. And uh, so I walked to the bedroom. Jerry followed me, kept arguing. I didn't like that. I literally caught myself trying to press into my closet to get away from her in my anger. It didn't make any sense. There's no room in my closet. I opened the door for no reason. I start walking in as... I was trying to press into my closet to get away from myself. I was angry, right? And it was insane, and I couldn't take it. I had to get away. And isn't that something like what Jonah's feeling here? Um, God's mercy to the pagans has torn him up. It's exposed what's inside of him, and he can't live with it. He can't live with himself. So he's insolent, he's petty, he's resentful, he's self-absorbed in his anger toward God, and the incredible thing is that God didn't crush him right there. That's that's the incredible thing. God didn't crush him right there for his insolence. Instead, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Um, And this is is amazing patience that God displays with Jonah. I think it's actually humorous. I think it's deliberately humorous like the mirth that danced in the eyes of the solid spirit who was talking to this ghost. Commentators point out, actually, that the book of Jonah is filled with puns. Overall, there seems to be almost a divine levity about it, if you can imagine, if it's not blasphemous to suggest the idea. It's like a great, terrible lion 
playing with a smaller creature with its paws, with its claws in, it's not going to hurt it. It's just having fun, <laughs> right? Um, not, just for, not just for fun's sake, but uh, there does seem to be a, a lighthearted, playful tone on God's part throughout the whole book. Throwing a storm on the sea, swallowing Jonah with a fish, vomiting Jonah up on dry land. I mean, it's funny images that we have, <clears throat> and it's filled with puns. And Jonah's story, I think, I think it's important for us to see Jonah's story is more like a comedy than it is a tragedy. Right? Aren't those kind of the only two major types of plays or whatever, right? It's comedy and tragedy. I think that's interesting that that's true. But Jonah's story is more like a comedy, and it might do us well to think of our lives as more comic than tragic, right? Um, because of the way God's grace is at work in the end. Uh, because of the way God's grace is at work. It's like God is saying with this, do you do well to be angry? He's like, aren't you taking yourself a little too seriously here? Right? And God's talking to Jonah like we would talk to a two-year-old who's throwing a tantrum. <clears throat> and then Jonah uh, storms off into his corner fuming. Right? That's the picture we have. Jonah went out of the city sat to the east of the city <clears throat> and made a booth for himself there and he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Right? He's still hoping that the Ninevites will mess something up and that God's righteous judgment will come down on them after all. It's petty. It's spiteful. He's just angry. He's nursing his anger over God's mercy. He can't see. He refuses to see how God's mercy to them, to those really terrible people over there, actually spells good news for him. He can't see that it actually spells good news for him. And that's the real insanity of self-righteousness. You remove yourself from God's free, gracious favor because you can't stand the thought that it's a gift that you can't earn. You want it, but only if you can earn it. You can't stand the thought that um, his favor would be a free gift. And in a sane world, we'd all give up everything to receive a gift like that, the gift of God's favor freely given to us. Now, <clears throat> the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah's got like salvation level rejoicing. He's exceedingly glad because of a little shade from the hot sun. It saved him from some discomfort. He was exceedingly glad about that, but he couldn't rejoice over these Ninevites who were being saved from destruction. Not just a hot, scorching day, but um, the day of God's judgment. In his anger with God, he's blowing things out of proportion. He's distorting reality. And God, in his mercy, is going to point that out the hard way. Right? When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And you see how messed up that is, right? But you understand it, don't you? And you can relate to that. Again, the, the remarkable thing is that God is even engaging with Jonah. He's 
asking him about his anger. He's drawing him out rather than wiping him out. And, um, of course, his calling Jonah to grapple with his own sin feels like he's being crushed. Feels like he's dying. And that's reflective of uh, the way God works with us. In Psalm 32, David wrote, it's a psalm of confession of sin, and he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That's what it feels like when God is putting the screws on you, not just to hurt you, to get you to confess your sins because it's good for you. Because he loves you, he's being merciful. Coming to grips with your sins and confessing them really is in your best interest. It really is. Uh, It really is a pursuit of God's mercy, even though that exposure, standing there exposed before him, like you're sandblasted um, down to the core of your soul, feels pretty much like the most painful thing ever. It really is good for you, and it really is a pursuit of God's mercy to you. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. He's pointing out what's, what's wrong with Jonah here. You pity the plant. You didn't labor for it. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night, perished in a night. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Um, Here, uh, God employs what is the argument from the lesser to the greater. You pitied the plant. It's a small deal. You didn't have much invested in it. Uh, It wasn't very precious to you. Shouldn't I pity the much more valuable great city of all those people and the cattle? Um, I'm not really sure about the cattle part, right? So um, it could be that God really likes animals and didn't want to have to wipe them out along with all the people. It could be that he's referring to them as part of the economic system that helps these people live and thrive. It could be that he's highlighting the expansiveness of his pity, that it just goes to every creature. And it could be a bit of levity, a bit of humor. I mean, the cattle repented too, remember? The cattle fasted and, uh, <clears throat> along with the people. So I don't, I don't really know. But it's a startling ending. And I think it's probably a little bit humorous. It's a startling ending and a confusing ending. And this question about whether it's okay for God to pity the people and the cattle, right, of Nineveh, uh, that question is confusing. God's not, he's not actually asking for permission, right? Um, he's making a statement, but it's one that requires a response on the part of the reader in particular. It required a response on Jonah's part, and now it requires a response on your part. He's saying clearly, it is good for him to pity the Ninevites, and they're very bad people. They're some of the worst people who ever lived, and it is good for God to pity them, and he's asking you whether you agree. Do you agree? Do you agree that God's compassion toward really evil people is good? He is a God who is compassionate toward people who really don't deserve it, really don't. Do you think that's good? Are you glad for his compassion? Or do you resent his grace because you think somehow, you know, it ought to count for something that you deserve more than they do, right? Jesus was always talking about this. We read about it, uh, well, we read about it in the 
the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in the gospel reading this morning from Matthew 20. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Hey, it's not fair. We worked hard. They didn't work at all, and you gave them the same reward you gave us. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong, he said. I'm doing you no wrong, friend. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge that? So the last will be first, and the first last. Um, Jesus talks about it in the parable of the two lost sons, which we looked at a couple months ago, where the older brother begrudges his father's generosity, begrudges his grace to the younger brother, the screw-up brother. And the story ends, leaving you wondering whether maybe, did he? Did the older brother give up his self-righteousness and go have fun in the party? Was he just, did he give it up and be happy and come in? The story leaves you wondering about that. And Paul writes in Romans 11 about salvation uh, on like international levels, right? Coming to the Gentiles. Away from the Jews to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they all might be saved. Israel would be jealous when they saw grace going out to the Gentiles, to the nations. And that was supposed to provoke them to jealousy so that they might be saved. Um, In the end, there are only bad characters in any of these stories. There are only bad characters that we can identify with, that we can relate to. And God has mercy toward bad characters. God has mercy toward them. He came in Jesus Christ to have mercy, to have pity, to identify himself with us so that we could identify with him. Uh, This kind of compassion that he has, it just doesn't make any sense. Good moral people think that it's not fair that bad people receive mercy. And clearly, good moral people don't deserve mercy either, right? Uh, And God has mercy on them all. He saves all kinds of sinners. He's not quick to rain judgment down on any of them. He says that the Ninevites don't know their right hand from their left. And that's an expression that means that they're clueless when it comes to how to be in a relationship with him. They're clueless about salvation. And he has pity on them. He has compassion for them. And this reminds you of Jesus who wept as he entered into Jerusalem, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you weren't willing. And then that same Jesus said as he hung battered and bloody on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of God is this? What kind of compassion is this? It doesn't make any sense to us because, of course, they knew what they were doing. It was deliberate, right? They had a long-standing tradition of killing prophets. They were unwilling to go to God for his mercy. They had conspired against God's own son to have him killed. They knew what they were doing. They knew their right hand from their left, didn't they? 
How can Jesus say they don't know what they're doing? Have pity on them. Forgive them. They knew, didn't they know? But God says they didn't, and He says that you don't. And He pities us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus, the Son of God Himself, died to pay for our intentional rebellion, overwhelmed it with His compassion. And that pity literally doesn't make any sense to us, right? If you can put that together, let me know how that works, how we can know what we're doing, and Jesus says we don't. Please forgive us, Father. That pity doesn't make any sense because we're deliberate about removing ourselves from the reach of God's mercy, but he can still reach you. And that grace can still forgive you and accept you and change you. We think we can judge. We think we know who deserves pity. But his pity is his to have. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That's up to him. And that's because he's God and we're not. And his ways are higher than ours. And his thoughts are higher than ours. We have no clue about the heights of his mercy. We don't have a clue. We don't know our right hand from our left when it comes to his love, to his compassion. And that would be frightening if it weren't for the fact that he's a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's a good thing, right? 